As I've said many times before, and will almost certainly say again, religion is Satan's masterpiece. He loves for people to believe that his primary work or his sole work is in the area of drug addiction or alcoholism or prostitution, etc. Now, I'm not saying that he is uninvolved in those things. But make no mistake about it, his favorite arena to operate in is religion. And when I say that he is involved in religion, I don't merely mean that he is involved in trying to cause divisions in churches, or involved in trying to get spiritual leaders to step into immorality, or trying to get leaders to embezzle funds. No doubt he is involved in those activities also. But his most concentrated efforts are focused on promoting religion, even Christian religion, as long as it is not thoroughly biblical. Satan loves for people to believe that everyone who has the title pastor or reverend or minister or preacher or bishop or clergy or priest or father is someone who truly and accurately represents the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. The sad fact, however, is that this is not the case. It is absolutely not the case. There are many men and women under the umbrella of Christianity or Christendom who have those titles, who have those positions, but they do not truly and accurately stand for the Word of God. Jesus warned us about this in His immortal Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And I would like us to turn there by way of introduction to our text this morning. So the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. As Jesus was winding down his Sermon on the Mount, he saw the need to warn the crowds, warn the multitudes, that not all religious leaders would lead them in the right path or in the right direction. And so he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Sheep's clothing, interestingly, was that which was worn by true shepherds. So the warning that Jesus is giving here in verse 15 is that many people who look like true spiritual leaders are not really true spiritual leaders. They may have the position, they may have the dress. They may use the language, they may look the part, dress the part, they may be called father or reverend or pastor or preacher, so it would be easy to assume that they are true spiritual leaders when in reality Jesus says they are false prophets. According to Revelation 2.8, Satan has his religious institutions, churches, synagogues, etc., he has his ministers, according to 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, And he has his doctrine, according to 1 Timothy 4, 1. So he has the whole religious package. Think about it. 
Churches, ministers, doctrine. He has the whole package. Satan is really into religion, all kinds of religion. And he uses the myriads of false teachers that have always been prevalent in the world to confuse people, to mislead people, to deceive people. But the scary part about it is that these false prophets, these false teachers, do not come across as dangerous. They may be nice men or women, sincere, kind, gracious, friendly. But their message is damning because they do not present the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they do not hold to the absolute authority of God's written word, the Bible. So Jesus warns, beware of false prophets. In verse 16, he says, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Jesus gave this warning almost 2,000 years ago, but it is virtually ignored by men and women today. He warned of false prophets, and he said they can often be identified by the fruit of their lives, or the fruit of their ministries, or the fruit of their lips. Yet there are millions of people who will stay in a religion or stay in a church that has leaders whose lives are a complete contradiction. How many stories of sexual abuse and cover-up And financial settlement, do people have to hear for them to believe that a church or a religion is rampant with false teachers? How many stories of drunkenness and lying and stealing and cheating and pilfering do people have to hear for them to believe that a religious leader is a false prophet? Yet people hear these things in our world, they see these things in supposed spiritual leaders, and still they continue to believe that these false prophets are true representatives of God. Jesus said in verse 17, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. I believe that the primary aspect of fruit that Jesus has in mind when he says these words is the fruit of their lips. In other words, their message, when examined closely, is a clear indicator that they are false prophets. The fruit of their lives isn't always easy to discern, but the fruit of their lips is a solid test. The primary mark of a false prophet is a false message. Let me say that again. The primary mark of a false prophet is a false message, an inaccurate message, an unbiblical message. But often, not always, but often that false message is accompanied by a character that is equally revealing. That's what the Apostle Peter tells us in the second chapter of his second letter. Let's turn there together to the text we have been considering for weeks now, 2 Peter chapter 2, over near the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2. 
Please follow along as I read verses 12 through 16. And I warn you in advance that this is not a pleasant passage to read. It's not a pleasant passage to talk about, but obviously one that is important to our Lord. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. The Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. And they will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. As you can see from reading through this little section, this part of Peter's letter is a warning about false teachers, and he tells us many things about them here in this second chapter of his letter. If we were to break down or outline this section from verses 10 to 22, you could do it this way. Verses 10 through 16 describe the character of false teachers. Verses 17 to 19 describe the work of of false teachers. And then verses 20 through 22 describe the destiny of false teachers. Their character, their work, their destiny. That's one way to break down this long section, which actually consists of verses 10 through 22. We've already looked at part of this section because we've covered verses 10 and 11, where Peter begins to describe the character of false teachers. Peter sets forth the arrogance of false teachers in verses 10 through 13a, and then their sensuality in verses 13b through 16. That's their character. Basically, Peter says two things about them. They are arrogant and often sensual. Then Peter describes the work of false teachers in verses 17 through 19, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next week in the next message. And then he closes this chapter with the tragic personal status or destiny of false teachers in verses 20 through 22. So that gives you an idea of where Peter is going and the big picture and how to get a handle on a a large paragraph of thought in this letter. Peter's basic message in this chapter is that false teachers who lead others astray with their error will not escape the judgment of God. In fact, their judgment will be even more severe. That's what we saw last week in the verses leading up to this section we just read. In verse 9, Peter says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially, 
especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries or glorious ones. All unsaved people will be judged someday, but especially false teachers who have led others astray in their error. As we have seen in our consideration of this chapter over the last several weeks, there are many parallels between this chapter and what Jude taught in his little letter about apostate false teachers. So to give us clarity on what Peter says here in the verses we're going to consider this morning, let's turn over to the little letter of Jude right at the end of the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation. Turn over with me to... Jude, as I say, it's almost easier to find the book of Revelation and back up till you find the little letter of Jude. In verses 8 and 9 of this little letter, as we saw last week, Jude tells us three things about false teachers. He says, physically, they are often immoral. Intellectually, they are arrogant. Spiritually, they are blasphemous. But Jude doesn't stop there in his description of these religious teachers. In fact, verse 10 says this. Jude verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. False teachers criticize things they don't know or don't understand. They don't have the foggiest notion of what truth really is. Because they have abandoned truth when they abandon the absolute authority, sufficiency, accuracy, and inerrancy of God's Word. They are quick to put down things to which they are spiritually blind. They think they are intellectually superior to those of us who just simply believe the Bible as our authority. But God says they are blind and ignorant of the truth. That's verse 10. He says, these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. What a shocking statement. False teachers think they are superior in knowledge to those who just take the Bible at face value, but Jude says they really only possess irrational animal instincts. Beloved, this This is God's evaluation of the character of false teachers. I know this may sound harsh, but remember, this is God's evaluation of the character of false teachers. Yes, Jude wrote these words. Yes, Peter wrote his words in 2 Peter 2. But what they wrote was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, guided by the Spirit of God. This is God's assessment of those who forsake the truth of His Word and then spin up their own religious ideas and propagate them as truth. And since all this is true, verse 11 says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Cain is a picture of the arrogance and false religion of apostate false teachers. Balaam is a picture of their greediness and deceitfulness. Korah is a picture of their open defiance and rebellion against God. Did you notice the progression of this verse? Or maybe it would be more accurate to say the digression of this verse. 
It begins by going the way of Cain. Then it moves on to running after the error of Balaam. And it ends with them perishing in the rebellion of Korah. Going, running, perishing. Apostasy is a sure progression toward eternity in hell. One man I read on this verse pointed out the following interesting antithesis. He said this, and I quote, By going in the way of Cain, apostate teachers have rejected the way. By running greedily after the error of Balaam, they have rejected the truth. And by rebelling and receiving God's judgment like Korah, they have rejected life. End quote. Here you have the antithesis of John 14, 6. False teachers reject the way, the truth, the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. False teachers reject the way, the truth, the life. But the scary part is they don't admit they're rejecting it. They just spin Jesus a different way. They just color him a different way. Misrepresent him a different way. So Jude gives three examples of false teachers. Let's look at each of these just quickly by way of introduction. First, he says, they have gone in the way of Cain. Cain is a picture of those who reject God's plan of redemption and make up their own religion of works. God required a blood sacrifice, but Cain refused to offer it. When Cain brought his offering in Genesis 4, he displayed the fact that he didn't care what God wanted. It didn't matter to him. Cain came up with his own plan. He refused to offer a blood sacrifice. That's exactly what we see happening today. An article in Christianity Today reported on a conference that took place a while back. It was an ecumenical women's conference. Among the many blasphemous things that took place at this conference, feminist theologian Dolores Williams said this about the death of Jesus. Quote, direct quote from her. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff, end quote. This is a supposed Christian women's conference. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. That is a blatant rejection of God's plan of redemption. But she is by no means the only one under the umbrella of Christendom. There are many others who have rejected God's plan of redemption. They say it's old-fashioned to talk about someone giving his life that, that makes God look bad, that he required his son to die. So they just substitute their own religion of good works. Just be a good person. Be nice. Be religious. God will let you in. This is done not only in the cults. It's done in liberal Christendom. Instead of salvation by the death of Jesus on the cross, many teach salvation through religion, ritual, good works. They are following the error of Cain. And then there's Balaam that Jude mentions here. Balaam was more interested in money than he was in integrity and truth and righteousness. So he took a bribe from Balak and persuaded the women of Moab and Midian to seduce the children of Israel to commit idolatry and immorality. He didn't care. He just wanted his money. We see this same kind of thing happening today. Many false teachers are in the ministry for financial profit. They have learned that you can make a lot of money in religion. 
And the heartbreaking thing about it is how many non-discerning Christians send money to them and support them. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. The third example Jude uses is Korah. He says they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. The, the, the original text, the Greek text, indicates, is very specific, that Korah rebelled against the word of God. So here's, here's the, the distinction in these three examples. Cain ignored God's word and just did his own thing. Balaam tried to get around it, but Korah openly rebelled against it. Korah's sin was that he said that Moses and the priests weren't needed to come to God. He said that anyone in the congregation of Israel could just go straight to God without having a mediator. Korah is a picture of those who think that sinful man doesn't need a mediator. This is exactly what we see today in our world. Even under the umbrella of Christendom. People claiming they don't need a Savior. That's old-fashioned, they say, to talk about that. You don't need a Savior. And many false teachers propagate this idea by teaching that God is already the Father of everyone. God is already your Father. Everyone is a child of God. There's no such thing as sin. God's going to overlook it. God is too loving to send anyone to hell. Surely you've heard those types of concepts set forth. But when God judged Korah and his followers, God showed how he felt about those ideas. We do need a Savior. We do need a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 14.6, No man comes to the Father except through me. And to all those who teach otherwise, Jude has this to say to them in verse 11, Woe to them. Damnation to them. The judgment of God is certain on those who go the way of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. That's Jude's message here in this verse. And it's the same one that Peter sets forth in the second chapter of his second epistle. So let's go back there to consider our text together in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Remember, in these verses, Peter is giving us a description of the character of false teachers. Then he will describe their work, and then finally he closes the chapter by describing their destiny. But first he gives us a description of them. Verse 12, he says, But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed... Speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. This is almost identical to what we just read in Jude verse 10. Both Jude and Peter tell us that false teachers speak evil of what they do not know. They speak evil of what they do not understand. Lock on to that concept, beloved, because it's so important so important. This is why you hear false teachers denying things like Noah and the ark, or Jonah in the belly of the huge fish, or other things that they refuse to accept because they can't understand how it could work scientifically. Sounds like a fable. Sounds like a fairy tale to them. 
If they can't understand it, if they don't know how it works, they deny it or make light of it or twist it or dismiss it and say it's just a myth. It's, we shouldn't take that literally. There wasn't a worldwide flood, Noah in a big boat. No man could live in the belly of a huge fish. This is what false teachers sometimes do in relation to sin and the necessity of the new birth. They speak evil of the doctrine of the total depravity of mankind by saying that not all people are sinners. Not all people are wicked in the eyes of God. They speak evil of the doctrine of the necessity of the new birth by saying it is an outdated concept by people who are old-fashioned fundamentalists. We've moved beyond that. We're more enlightened today. You don't need to talk about people being born again, the necessity of that. Instead, they will teach the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of mankind. We're all brothers and sisters. We all have God as our Father. I could go on for a long time explaining and giving examples of how false teachers speak evil of things they do not know, speak evil of things they do not understand. If it's not something they can rationally explain, if it's not something they can rationally comprehend, they deny it or speak evil of it or dismiss it. This is why so many false teachers, again, under the umbrella of Christendom, deny the doctrine of eternal hell. Because they can't comprehend it, and no one can, because they can't understand it, they twist the Scripture to say that it doesn't teach that doctrine. And they speak evil of those of us who hold to it. They say it's more noble to believe in the love of God, which implies that you don't believe in the love of God if you hold to the biblical doctrine of eternal hell. False teachers speak evil of things they do not know. They speak evil of things they do not understand. If it doesn't line up with what makes sense to them in their finite minds, they will criticize it, and they will criticize those of us who hold it. What they don't realize, Peter says here, as well as Jude, what they don't realize is that they are criticizing God and His truth. How foolish is that? Who is any man or woman to think that he can criticize God for saying what God said? No wonder Peter says they are like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. No wonder he says they will utterly perish in their own corruption. It's Peter's way of saying they will be judged by God, damned by God. They corrupt God's truth by making it subservient to their own intellect, their own minds. And as a result, they will utterly perish. Then Peter says it another way in the next verse, in verse 13. He says, And they will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. The first phrase of this verse says they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. False teachers work. Oh yes, they work, they labor, but they aren't working for God as they might assume 
or as others assume. Just because they are involved in religion doesn't mean they are truly working for God. Remember, Satan is the master counterfeiter, and he loves to be the source of religion. So Peter says here, false teachers will receive their wages someday, but Peter reminds us that they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. What they are doing is unrighteous. Even if they don't live immoral lives, listen to this, even if they don't live immoral lives, which many false teachers do, but even if they don't, what they are doing is unrighteous. Think about it this way, beloved. There is nothing more unrighteous than twisting God's Word or misrepresenting God's Word. There's nothing more unrighteous than that. I don't care what you do. Nothing, it, all other things pale in comparison to doing that. That's what false teachers do. And Peter says they will get paid for what they do. Oh, they'll get their wages. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Further, as I said a moment ago, many false teachers, not all, but many, live immoral lives. That's why the next phrase says they counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. That is simply a way of saying that false teachers often engage shamelessly in wicked and vile and lewd behavior. You know, I fear, I fear that we hear about these things so often that we have become numb to them. We hear about religious leaders involved in adultery, involved in homosexuality, involved with prostitutes. We hear about priests who have repeatedly abused little boys. We hear these things so often that it's no longer a shock to us when it ought to be a shock. It ought to be staggering to hear of that. But it's just another news story because it's so common. 2,000 years ago, God said this would be the very kind of thing false teachers do. This is what they often do. Some live in self-indulgence and some live in luxury. But even those who don't are propagating the worst wrong imaginable by refusing to be true and faithful to God's Word. Peter says they are spots and blemishes. Some translations use the, that's almost an offensive term, they use the term scabs. They're scabs, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. He is probably referring to the common practice of the early church to participate in meals that were called love feasts. The love feast was a meal that everyone in the church ate together before they celebrated communion or the Lord's table. If that's what Peter is referring to, then his point is that these false teachers would participate and partake of the love feast and the communion celebration just as if they were truly a part of the family of God. And listen to this, beloved. They may even think they are. They may have even convinced themselves that they are. They act as if they are a part of the bride of Christ. But in reality, they are blots and blemishes, Peter says. They aren't part of the true bride of Christ. They aren't part of the true bride of Christ because they are unfaithful to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ himself. And that is why Peter adds his next statement, verse 14. He says, Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, 
enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. I mean, Peter just keeps piling up descriptions here. It's difficult to know if Peter is referring to physical adultery or spiritual adultery in the first phrase of this verse when he, has, when he says they have eyes full of adultery. It is a fact that false teachers often engage in physical immorality. But even if they don't do that, they certainly engage in spiritual adultery because they are unfaithful to the Lord and His Word. And by being unfaithful to the Lord and His Word, they end up doing what Peter says in the next phrase of verse 14. He says they they end up enticing unstable souls. Beloved, just think about, just think about how many people are influenced by and involved in unbiblical religion. Think about that. I'm not just referring to the obvious false religions like Islam and Buddhism and Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witness cult. I'm talking about churches under the umbrella of Christendom. Churches that substitute tradition and liturgy instead of or in place of the Word of God. There are, this is not exaggeration, there are millions and millions of people who fall into this category of being seduced or deceived by false teachers. No wonder God uses such strong language against these religious, religious leaders. At the end of this verse, God calls them accursed children. Accursed. That's what false teachers are. They will be eternally cursed by God for their refusal to be true and faithful to the inspired and errant word of God. Peter also says here that they have hearts trained in greed. This is a theme that he's repeated several times in different ways. It is a fact that many false teachers are in the ministry for money. No doubt about it. They have learned that you can make a good living in religion. You can. You can make a a lot of money off of people by using religion. Especially if, as Peter says here, they're in any way unstable. Unstable souls, he says. You can make money off people by telling them what they want to hear. And when that is their motivation, they are following in the footsteps of a man who lived over 3,000 years ago and did the exact same thing. In other words, this is nothing new. This has been going on for at least 3,000 years. Verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. As we saw earlier in the book of Jude, Balaam was a prophet for hire. That almost sounds like a contradiction, but he was a prophet for hire. He was a prophet for sale to whomever paid him, a prophet who preferred wealth and popularity over faithfulness and obedience to God. Tragically, there are many false teachers like this today. They make money by telling people what they want to hear. They tell people that it's God's will to prosper you. It's God's will to heal everyone. It's God's will for you to succeed in life. You can have your best life now. 
False teachers often tell people, if you will send in a gift to this ministry, God will bless you for it. God will prosper you. God will repay you tenfold if you'll just send me some money. And people believe it. And they do it. People give vast amounts of money to false teachers in churches. People give vast amounts of money to false teachers on television. People give vast amounts of money to false teachers on the radio. Just last night, after 10 o'clock, uh, someone sent me a, a link. I was reading an article about a false teacher, if I mentioned the name you would know him, who now charges people to sit near the front so they can be closer to him. So for about 100 and 100, I think it was $114.95, you can sit in one of the front, front rows of his church. Any way to make money off of people. And you know what? The, there's a waiting list. There's a waiting list to pay to sit near the front. Religion is a powerful force in people's lives. It is powerful enough to move people to part with their money. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness, Peter says here. That doesn't necessarily mean that Balaam was immoral or wicked or vile in actions. We don't know if he was or not. But there is nothing more unrighteous. Hear this. Nothing more unrighteous than twisting God's word or misrepresenting God's word. In some ways, it is the worst of all evils. And that is what false teachers do. In Balaam's case, the only thing that stopped him was God's miraculous intervention by working through his donkey. And so Peter summarizes that story in verse 16. He says, But he, he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. This story is found in Numbers chapter 22, and we don't have time to go back and read the whole story. It's an amazing story, fascinating. But let me just summarize it. As Balaam went with the princes of Moab to get his money for saying what King Balak wanted him to say, the angel of the Lord blocked Balaam's donkey three times. Balaam couldn't see, but the donkey could. So the donkey would stop or turn around and once it rammed his leg up against the wall. And each time Balaam became furious and struck, struck the donkey with his staff. After the third time, Numbers 22, 28 tells us that the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now if you think that's amazing, that the donkey spoke, Balaam answered the donkey. That's even more amazing. He had a conversation with the donkey. No wonder, Peter says, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. He was insane. Balaam was so consumed with getting his money that it's, it's, it's as if he was almost insane. What a pathetic picture of false teachers. It's Peter's way of saying they are so focused on money that it's, it's almost insanity that they don't realize what is coming their way in judgment. They're so focused on the here and now that it's insanity to do what they're doing and to be heading for the judgment 
of God. And they don't care. They just don't care. Beloved, false teachers. False teachers are still a reality in our world. And this is God's assessment of them, here and in the book of Jude. We would do well to take his assessment seriously. We would do well to believe what he says. And he has seen fit to leave an inspired record in Jude and 2 Peter 2 for all ages so that people would know that there are false teachers like this in every generation. And maybe even more now today than ever before. So take seriously what God says about false teachers. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes in the few minutes we have remaining here, a couple times throughout the message I stress that the most heinous thing anyone could do is mislead people in relation to God's truth. I mean, it's, it's heinous to take people's money and to, to sexually abuse boys and just whatever you want to add to the list. All of those are just awful, awful things. But nothing is as bad as leading people down the wrong path toward a crisis eternity. Nothing is as bad as refusing to state clearly to people that we are all sinners before God and our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. To withhold that message from people or to blur it, to twist it, to disregard it, is the worst thing imaginable. So please hear me when I say this morning that on the authority of God's Word, you will not spend eternity with Christ unless you humble yourself before God, repent of your sin, acknowledge that you are a sinner who deserves judgment, repent of your sin, let go of anything that you're holding on to that, that keeps you from surrendering to Jesus Christ, and yield your life to Him. If you do not, no matter how much good you try to do, regardless of how religious of a person you are, no matter how many hoops you've jumped through religiously, you will not spend eternity with Christ. Only those who have received Christ will be with Him. Only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and Christ alone will be with Him. So hear that message this morning. Humble yourself before God. Acknowledge your sin. Admit that you're a sinner. Repent of that. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to turn from my sin, and I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive you into my life. I want to belong to you. Take me. Make me the man or the woman you want me to be. Enter into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ in which you follow him. It's the only path to eternal life. And Father, may we never tire of proclaiming that message. It's the only message of hope for people in our world. It's the only message of eternal hope. It's found only in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have made that so abundantly clear in your Word. You've said it over and over again so many, in so many different passages and in so many different ways. Salvation is, in, is found only in Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, this unpleasant
topic of false teachers. We want to end with truth. We want to end by saying what needs to be said to this day and age and to every generation, that salvation is only in Jesus Christ. So we pray, Father, that if there is anyone hearing these words right now who is not right with you, who has not surrendered to your Son, Jesus Christ, may your Holy Spirit be pleased to bring understanding, conviction, enlightenment, so that that man or woman, young person, whoever it is, would understand what he or she needs to do to turn to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. For we pray these things together in his precious name. Amen.